Welcome to STR Stronger Together Meet the Scholar series, episode number 17, featuring Dr. Ruth uh, Aguilera from Northeastern University. She's calling in from Barcelona. I am Zhao Lo from University of Minnesota. I'm a STR uh, executive committee member and also your moderator for today's session. I'm dialing in from Minneapolis. I'm joined by Pitoj Hayton at Monash University who is our membership engagement committee officer and manager of the session. He is dialing in from Sydney and uh, Pitosh is 2 a.m. right now, is that right? Uh, yes, brutal, okay. but totally, <laughs> totally inferred. Right, so I think we're just, you know, we're doing our best, doing justice to Ruth's global presence and reputation. Um, um, also with us is uh, Samina Karim, um, also from Northeastern University, our fearless leader and the STR uh, program chair who made the summer series um, of STR activities possible. So thank you. thank you. Thank you, Samina. So welcome everyone and especially welcome, welcome Ruth. Um, so let me, uh, let me spend a few minutes Hello. to introduce Hello. Ruth um, and quickly summarize her achievement today, which is, you know, how we usually start this session. So Ruth is a distinguished Kara Frederick Broski trustee professor in global business at the uh, Dimmer McKim School of Business at Northeastern University. She, um, she uh, previously, uh, before Northeastern, she was at the University of Illinois um, at Urbana-Champaign for about 15 years, uh, where she was promoted to full professor. Uh, in the meanwhile, she also has a visiting professorship at institutions all around the world. Uh, Ruth got her PhD uh, in sociology at Harvard University in 1999. Um, and she has just so many awards and recognition, and I, I really couldn't fit in um, to the, the slide. Um, but let me just highlight a few. So she's a fellow of AIB, as well as a fellow of uh, SMS. Uh, she's listed in the world's most influential scientific minds uh, in economics and business by Tom's Ruders. She has received numerous best paper awards, uh, such as uh, Claudia 2014 best paper in ethics, um, social responsibility and sustainability. She has received many, many different research grants, uh, including a major grant by Spanish Ministry of Science and Innovation. Uh, Ruth has um, also done a lot of editorial appointments. Um, so she has started recently at AMR as associate editor, proud to that, she was at Oak Science for six years as senior editor. Uh, in the meanwhile, she was also editor for Corporate uh, Governance International Review. Uh, she has done many special issues uh, at the same time. And if you look at the list for various different journals, right? And if you look at the list, uh, she's done one special issue a year since 2015. Uh, in the meanwhile, she's on editorial review boards uh, for many journals and I counted 12 uh, concurrently. Um, so uh, Ruth has also done tons of professional uh, services, uh, including SMS uh, board members uh, since 2016 uh, and re-elected re re in 2019. Her uh, recent initiative includes um, gender issues in our profession, uh, which is something that we'll be talking about later. 
Uh, she also uh, served as board members, program chairs, committees for various other academic conferences and organizations. Um, and she published over 100 articles and book chapters, uh, including as well as two edited books. The Google citation, uh, as, I, as I saw on Sunday, is uh, of, uh, close to 17,000. Her research, as many of you know, lies in the intersection of strategic org, economic sociology, and global strategy. Her specialty is in international uh, corporate governance, as well as corporate social responsibility. So looking at this, uh, wow, what a wrong rules uh, so far. Since most of us are muted, I thought I would, you know, collapse for everyone. <laughs> um, all right, let me stop sharing and come back uh, to the big screen. So uh, let me start by saying welcome, Ruth. Uh, it's really such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me as well. Um, you know, it's so nice to see so many faces from my colleagues at Northeastern to all the friends, co-authors, editors, etc. You know, I am in a very rural place in Barcelona, so if the birds bother you, let me know and I'll close the window and then I'll get very hot because there is no AC. Uh, and if I get disconnected, let me know, you know, then I probably connect again and it should work. Uh, so I, I want to say thank you for having me here. Uh, you know, I really enjoy listening to the other people. Um, thank you, Samina, for being such a force to SDR. I mean, it's just amazing. I'm so, I'm so proud to be your colleague. And uh, of course, to Jiao and Pitoj for hosting it and Asim. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so we, you know, we start these, uh, these series, as you probably know, um, by trying to uh, get a bit of understanding of your background and especially what attracted you to academia. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Okay, so yeah. All right, so as you know, I am from uh, Barcelona, Spain. So I am a Catalan, I'm, I feel quite Catalan in addition to European and a world citizen. I, I grew up, um, you know, I grew up in a very liberal uh, household, almost in a, in a commune, political commune that were fighting against Franco. And, um, and even, you know, my parents were really the black sheep in this region of Spain that I come from, which is kind of northern Italy that maybe you're more familiar with, where the area is very much a small, you know, family businesses. But my, my, both my parents met, actually my parents met in prison, fighting against Franco. And uh, they started this, you know, commune, commune where I grew up, but it was like more of a political place for people to organize against the regime. So I grew up here, uh, I grew up, this is exactly where I am now. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's very nice. It's outside Barcelona. And then I, you know, I didn't know what to study. And in high school, I did a test and they decided that I could either, you know, that I could, I could definitely be a boss and that, <laughs> and that I could do either economics or engineering. So I decided to do, uh, I decided to do economics. I didn't want to do business because I thought it would be, well, my parents decided that I shouldn't do business because it would be too narrow. They thought it would be better to do something big and then I could be, you know, go into politics maybe or, you know, do something else. 
So, um, you know, I, uh, I went to the University of Barcelona to study economics. You know, if you are from Europe, you, you just go, you know, you go to the closest place. Like, you know, you go where you're supposed to go. You, you don't, you know, you, you don't go like to Madrid. Like you wouldn't go. Like if you're in Barcelona, you go to the one closer to you. So that's, uh, that's where I went. And um, so when I was at university, I actually didn't have a lot of money. So I always, you know, I work, I finance myself. So my job was to translate every single manual for IBM. So if you had a printer and you open a manual, I would, you know, I translated a lot of OS 360, a lot of big machines for IBM, printers, everything like, you know, I translated from English to Spanish, and that's that's how I kind of supported myself. And then, you know, and then I hired people to help me, etc. So that's, but at some point um, during my at the end of my first year, and this is really like a life changing kind of thing. I uh, there was this professor, you know, so I was in the Faculty of Economics, but there was this professor who was a Yale PhD, and he had come back to Spain, and he. Um, uh, he had worked at Yale with uh, Chick Perot and Juan Linz. Can you hear me? Yeah, no? Yeah, I only Very see well. Samina and Asim. Uh, so he, every year, he, every year he hired a couple, a couple of uh, uh, undergraduates to his social observation lab. And so, you know, like, so he offered me a job and I was just very interested in the money at the time. So I said, yes. Well, the first thing I asked is, you know, how much are you going to pay me? And uh, so, and then he hired me and it turns out that, you know, people, you know, he had hired, all the people that he had hired were, for instance, um, Juan Campos that had gone to Harvard Economics and then to NYU. Then the person right before me, like, had been Mauro Guillén, who, you know, they collectively decided that he would go to Yale to do a PhD, and then he went to Sloan and then Wharton. And then right after me, uh, you know, like uh, two years after me, it was uh, Emilio Castilla. And basically what we did is like, we worked in this, you know, social observation lab, but also like he helped us get grants to, so, you know, I went my first year out of Spain, I went to Berkeley and they, they collectively decided that I should take a, a class on race relations. So I took a class on that. Then I got a grant to go to Lancaster. Um, so for one year and, uh, and then, you know, on the fourth year, because in Spain economics is five years in the, in the fourth year, it's just like, it was part of it that, you would apply for a PhD. So like Mauro was already, at, Mauro was already at Yale. There were other people, another guy who was in San Diego. So they kind of, we help each other apply. And, you know, I applied to seven programs. By that time, you know, I, I had a good beta just coming from Spain because nobody had good betas, you know, like I, I knew English, uh, I spoke English and I, and, you know, they kind of, we, they kind of collectively decided that, you know, the best program for me was Harvard, you know, and for Emilio, we decided that he needed to go to Stanford, even though he got into Harvard because, you know, I was already so, so um, I, you know, I applied for a PhD in, in, in sociology because up to that point for five years, I had basically been doing math. I had been doing very, very equilibrium economics, very modeling, very math. This is what my colleague now uh, reach that. So I, I had been doing five years of that. 
and a very, uh, you know, very strong economic, you know, very intense econometrics as well. So I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to do things with empirics. I wanted to like do things with data. I had, you know, when I was at Berkeley, I wrote this paper on, in the summer course, uh, on inter-ethnic relation, inter-ethnic marriages with the Spanish census. So basically they were Moroccans and Algerians. And I was looking at, you know, the, the female, the woman had higher status than the male. And, you know, what happened to these people when I follow them? So I was like, oh, I was really fascinated by the data. And I was fascinated by the data working with this professor in his social observatory lab. So I decided uh, that I would do economics and you know, I, that I would do sociology. And that's like really how I landed into sociology, even though my interest was really more in historical economics or business history, but I, I really didn't know. And so that's how, this kind of how I, at, uh, in, you know, at Harvard in sociology, but a big field of sociology, many parts of it that I was really not interested at all. And I was more interested in the economic sociology, historical sociology, political sociology, and you know, economic history and all that. So this is, um, so the, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, like one another anecdote is that before I got to Harvard, I thought I had terrible statistical skills. So I decided, you know, well, they kind of collectively decided because they decide, you know, we decided that I would go to Michigan and suck up the, you know, eight courses the entire summer, three months in the institute. It's called ICPSR. And I did this course that's called the Summer Program in Quantitative Methods. So then, you know, the first day that I got to Harvard, I took this econometrics test and basically I didn't have to take any more, which was kind of, it was kind of a mistake, but, uh, you know, like I kind of overdid it because I was so insecure. Like I thought, you know, like I'm gonna totally flunk. And you know, the other part, the other part of the information is that when I left to go to do my PhD, I didn't think, I thought, okay, I have a grant, I have this money, I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna party, I'm gonna have a great time. And then in one year I'm coming back. There's no way I'm staying there. There's no way on earth. Like, you know, so that was like my, um, <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, that's how I arrived there, you know, kind of, it was like a little bit like that I had met, you know, that I had, you know, I had, I was working for this professor and that that's kind of like what right. we were doing. I didn't want to disappoint him and other people. It's like, okay, let's apply, you know, and then all of a sudden I found myself there. And right. that's yeah. a, that's a great, that's a great story and a great, you know, collection yeah. of, of people who you just mentioned. Um, so you arrived at, uh, at Harvard uh, and was the doctoral program, you know, you already prepared um, and you've taken courses and you've been to the U.S. institutions before. Um, so is there anything that surprised you about that process? And how did you, and you know, the, the, the topics you mentioned in terms of, you know, race, in terms of marriage, those are classic sociological topics. Um, then how did you, you know, arrive at your dissertation topics, which is about, you know, bitterness and uh, interlocks? Yeah, so, you know, I, I was not prepared at all, like zero prepared. I only had very good, you know, econometrics skills, and I definitely had like the imposter syndrome. And I thought, you know, like when I first got there, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I thought it was very uh, competitive in a nasty way. 
you know, like this was my first impression, like my first impression in the classes, because I was not used to this, no? I was not used to, you know, like the typical comment, like in a seminar, you know, I could barely finish the book and people were commenting on the footnotes, you know, but then, you know, I quickly, you know, not quickly, but then I realized that, you know, they had actually not read the book. They were like kind of, you know, some of them, not all of them, you know, so I quickly realized that they were probably as insecure as I was and they were trying to impress, uh, you know, and then, you know, like you become friends over time. But at the beginning, I was like, oh my God, you know, I can barely like finish chapter one. And these people are talking about the footnotes or the wrong T-score in like chapter six because they have, you know, like, oh, so I was, you know, um, so that's, uh, that was, that was, it was really, really, really a big shock, but I, I didn't worry too much because I was thinking about, you know, I'm just going to have a great time here. I had money. I didn't have to work because I had worked five years of my entire life, two jobs. And, you know, and I, and also, you know, my parents would leave me alone. So I also had, you know, good grades, but I had to work very hard. So I thought, well, I don't have to work. I can just take classes. And, and so basically the reason, you know, the reason why why the number one reason why I decided to go to Harvard, even though they were, was because I wanted to work with Cedar Scotchpool, and Cedar Scotchpool was I had read her book, um, uh, Stage and Revolutions, which is a book that compares, you know, Russia. It's a very historical sociology book, yeah. and then I had read her book, Soldiers and Mothers, and I wanted to do a dissertation comparing the welfare states, and that was my initial, um, you know, my initial. Uh, idea like when I applied and when I got there uh, then then when I got there after I got there after I took some courses I got more interested in economic sociology I guess I took some courses in political science I took you know so like just the courses I took and also at that time and this is like uh, this exactly you know I'll date myself but this is exactly 1992 because that's the Spanish Olympics which I completely miss because I had to be in Michigan taking statistics and survey methods and all sorts of things. Um, I, uh, that, at that time is when network analysis was becoming very, very big. And I took a course with Peter Marsden, which was you know, a big networks person at the time. So I got along very well with him. He was very warm. And at that time, then I decided that I would switch from Cedar Scotchpool. I would keep Cedar Scotchpool in my committee but I would switch to somebody that was more matching my personality. Because, you know, one of the big eye openings is that, you know, some of these advisors, and this, this was a completely different situation at Illinois. Uh, you know, some of these advisors, and, you know, I think, I think everybody knows Cedar Scotchpool, she was very, very cold. She was, you know, I remember meeting her the day after Christmas, and she didn't even ask me like, how was your Christmas? Even though like I'm a Jewish person, no. You know, she didn't even ask me, how was your holiday? Are you with somebody? Are you, and I just mm -hmm. thought, you know, this is insane. This, you know, I don't want to work with a person like this. She would not do any, you know, and I, so I just thought, you know, I cannot work with her. So I switched to Peter Marsden, which was, he was, a you know, he's a very generous man and very warm. And even though, you know, I could still continue to learn with Sida, I didn't want her as my main person. And then as a third person, I put Mauro Guillen, who I already, already knew, mm -hmm. and he was at the time at the Sloan. So, you know, with Mauro also, you know, like he was very focused at the organization at the film level. Right. 
So then I decided that I would do something, you know, once I decided that I would stay, I decided that I would do something that I knew that I had a little bit of a competitive advantage and it's something that I also care a lot about. So my dissertation at the end was comparing, you know, 100 years of the directorship interlocks and crusher holdings of Spain and Italy mm -hmm. and trying to understand why these two economies had such different, you know, corporate governance. I mean, that's like, it wasn't called corporate governance at the time. Mm -hmm. So this was, uh, you know, so I guess, you know, like if you were, you know, so like, I, I guess, you know, one of the things, so I have to say I made very friends in the PhD in the sense that, you know, I think, you know, I have, I see here, you know, I, I only see uh, nine people and I see young. <laughs> I see Samin, I see young, I see Asim, I see Razvan, I see, uh, so I think, you know, I see Rich, Rich, um, I, I think, you know, the PhD, you know, the PhDs that, you know, they, the relationship that I had with my PhDs at Illinois, you know, I felt like they were a lot more warmer, you know, and I'm sure it's the ones that Samina had at BU and, you know, at Minneapolis, you know, at Minneapolis and that, uh, that Craig has at Notre Dame. I mean, it's like, and I don't see anybody else uh, rich, probably at Purdue. So I, you know, it was more distant. It was almost a self-made PhD. You had to ask for an audience, not, not so much with Peter Marsden or Mauro, but it was not as accessible. So, you know, I guess, you know, my, one of the takeaways, because that's one of the things that, I think it's important is that one of the takeaways is, you know, choose wisely your PhD because this is a lifetime decision. You know, like you are going to be in touch with your PhD advisor and with your committee for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I think it's very important to have a good uh, personality match yeah. because, you know, it's a very, you know, what, later on at Illinois when I became a lot more involved with the PhDs, it's a very stressful time. Yeah. People, it's like, it's a time when people are young and they go through life changes, you know, some people get married, some people, so I think it's very important to have somebody that can support you, not only in your academics, but also in your personal life, or at least that you know they are there and something happens. Yeah. I, so I, I think I, that would be, yeah. yeah. I love that. I think that's a, you know, that's a great message in terms of finding a personality match uh, between the PhD yeah. student um, and the advisor or team of supporters. Uh, the other thing you mentioned about the dissertation process, uh, which I'm curious about, is uh, you mentioned comparative advantage, right? The idea that, well, so my advisors, they have, you know, various different interests and uh, expertise, and, you know, I'm going to think about what I'm good at. So could you, could you say a little bit more about that? I thought that was a really, really good point as well. Yeah, so, you know, I, um, I, was, I was interested in the welfare, you know, I was interested in the welfare state and comparing welfare state systems. But I was also very interested in um, in economic history, you know. And at the time, Harvard had a very good within the economics department. They had a very strong economic history department. And you know, actually in in Spain, I had also you know done a lot of economic history and business history. So I mean, I think that's also what you know because I was in this environment. I was going to seminars, and um, so I think. That was also that I thought, you know, if I'm, you know, I'm not going to start something new. I'm already interested in this, so why don't I continue this? And then with Peter Mars, then I was, I became very interested in networks. I had, you know, so I had read the paper, you know, Granovetter's paper. Granovetter was out, the paper of Granovetter, but there were also, you know, I was, you know, I was kind of a Marxist, 
So I was very influenced by Mike Yusim, you know, which now has moved completely out, but he's, you know, Mike Yusim, and then at Michigan, um, you know, Miss Rookie, you know, all these were like my big, big, big heroes. And, you know, Ron Barr, you know, they were like kind of a, a, you know, a generation, you know, they were like the cutting edge people at the time, but they were a generation ahead of me. And, you know, and they, they were right, you know, Jerry Davis, of course, Jerry Davis, my hero. And, you know, so all these, um, so, you know, I wanted to do this kind of work. I thought it was very, very interesting. And of course the work of Mauro as well. And, uh, and I was writing a book, I was not writing a dissertation because, you know, that's like what people wrote. So, um, the sociology yeah, so that's why right? I ended up yeah. there, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I, you know, I read, I read the dissertation before the session and uh, what impressed me is it's a massive, massive undertaking. Uh, in terms of you know both the theory part as well as the very ambitious dissertation, you collected broad interlock data uh, from scratch for not only you know one setting, one country, but also two different <laughs> two different countries. So, uh, is that something you advise PhD students to do? Thinking back, de de definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought you know. An I thought it was a great exercise, but there were so many mistakes. There were so many mistakes that actually, I don't think it was publishable. You know, um, I I wrote one paper out of my dissertation, which is really, you know, when I finished my PhD, we, there were there was eight of us in the job market, and you know, I was the only one to get a job, and this was sociology, so it was harder to get a job in sociology, but. The only reason why I got a job is because I had this one paper, which is, you know, it was my first paper, which is the European Sociological Review, which, you know, it was a decent journal in sociology. And this paper is a typical paper that, you know, I had no clue, but, you know, Peter Marsden should have been the co-author, but I had no clue. Like, I didn't even have the decency to invite him to be my co-author because he worked so much with me on this paper, <laughs> you know, and, um, and, um, so that's, that's really what gave me, you know, an advantage. And that was the only exercise, but my dissertation was simply, simply an exercise. It was like an exercise that to publish it. And this is why, you know, I didn't publish it, but it was written like an Oxford University Press manuscript. And, um, and you know, like it was like, I collected, you know, I remember I went to Bocconi, I collect, you know, I, I, I learned Italian, I took Italian classes at Harvard. It was easy, you know, like from a Spanish person that already spoke five Latin languages. It was easy to learn another language. So I learned Italian. I read a lot of Italian books. I went to Bocconi with Anna Grandori and, you know, who was a great theorist. And, you know, other people who are there. Giuseppe Soda. It's not a, it's not a today, you know, Alfonso Gambardella and, you know, Charlie Williams. It was back in the day, but I spent, you know, six months in Bocconi collecting. Because in Bocconi, they had incredible economic history department, you know, with amatory and a lot, a lot of very, very good people. Mm -hmm. So I collected the data from scratch, um, yeah. you know, li literally collecting from scratch. My mother helped me a little bit <laughs> with the data, like, you know, in inputting data. And then <laughs> in Spain, I did the same. And then, you know, because I had good math and good computational, because I had to work right. for IBM for five years, you know, like basically translating all these manuals. I knew how to transpose matrix. I knew how to, you know, I knew how to code. So I had these huge data sets that I could do, you know, it was slow, mm -hmm. um, but I could, you know, manage all that data, the networks, I could yeah. do nice, you, you know, at the time it was UCI net, 
um, yeah, so you know, I, I, I was it was fun. Um, yeah, it's a yeah, beautiful, so beautiful fun, piece. <laughs> um, thank yeah. you. So, um, so from from there, right after you graduated um, at Harvard, uh, you um, you uh, joined UIUC, um, and um, so why why strategy, right? Uh, why not you know why not sociology? What uh, drive your decision there? Yeah. So as I told you, they were, uh, they were very, you know, I guess coming from sociology, there were a few jobs. And, you know, the other thing is like, I also learned that if you get a PhD from an elite university, there are some places, you know, like there are some places, let's say, you know, like there are some places, maybe, you know, I don't know what places, but, you know, not good enough, you know, like the best thing that happened to, at Harvard for me was I learned a lot and I met my husband. So this is like absolutely the best thing that happened to me. <laughs> absolutely. So I had a boyfriend, you know, and I, you know, I came from a very liberal background. People in, in Europe at that time didn't marry. So, you know, he was also a sociologist. He had, he was uh, Erminia Ibarra's RA. He had a PhD in sociology and he was working with Owen Sorensen and Erminia Ibarra. And I, yeah, and so he was a sociologist as well. And so we were both looking for jobs as a dual career. And, you know, so I got an offer from Stanford and I say, I have a boyfriend. And they said, I have a dog, next, next, next. So he would go to NYU, it's like, you say, I have a boyfriend. It's like, did you meet him yesterday at McDonald's or what? Next, next, next. So I went to Illinois and they said, I said, I have a boyfriend. And they said, oh, you know, uh, we have a dual career because it's the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, like we have a, this dual career. The only thing is like, you have to marry him. And it's like, okay, you know, where's the, you know, yeah, fine. That's no, no big deal. It's like, where do I go? Yeah. Um, so, you know, so that's how I ended up at Illinois because they hired both of us, you know, like they hire uh, both of us. But I tell you that it was, you know, and that's, when I went to the job market, I went to both, but you know, it was also a time where business schools, you know, and I, I don't think this is no longer the time, but it was a time where business schools were, you know, were hiring people who were purists. They were hiring economists, they were hiring psychologists, and they were hiring sociologists. Mm -hmm. They wanted people with pure PhDs mm -hmm. in the business school. So I was kind of hotter in the business school than in the um, than in the sociology department. But you know, when I you know when I was in the job market, I was completely unprepared, completely unprepared. And I'll tell you two anecdotes very quickly that can give you, um, I'll, I'll be fast, but that can give you an idea of this. Oh, please. Yeah, uh, yeah anecdote number one, uh, I go to Ohio State, Fisher School, and of course, I, I print all the, you know, all the papers that everybody has published at that time, you know, still, you know, kind of like internet era. I publish every, you know, I print everything, I read everything, everybody that I'm going to meet, I'm, you know, extremely prepared, desperate for a job. And I'm giving the job talk, and I think I think it was Odette Chenkar asked something about RBB, okay? Right. And Jay Barney is in the audience. I had no clue, no clue what RBB was. <laughs> and I knew that something, I didn't say, of course, I didn't know, but I I just, you know, I kind of like tried to get myself out of it, but I could see in the faces of the audience that it's like, oh my God, I just did something incredibly wrong. Of course, I didn't get the job. And only like five years later, I am a pretty good skier. I am in the lift in the OS winter conference in Utah. Right. And as you right. know, Jay Barney is a pretty good skier as well. Right. I have my helmet. He's next to me. And I'm just like, he just sat next to me. And I had not talked to him, nothing. 
And I'm just like with my helmet, it's like, okay, I hope he doesn't remember who I am, <laughs> you know. And he turns to me and says, so did you brush up on your RBB? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, okay, so I never use RBB, you know, like I'm still intimidated. And then my other one about Illinois, my other anecdote that it wasn't as bad, you know, but the other anecdote is that when I get, you know, when I went there to give the job talk, um, Greg Northcroft was the, was the chief editor of AMJ, okay? And he was impressed upon me that if I went there, I had to publish in AMJ. I had to publish in AMJ. He's the, you know, we have the editor of, you know, at Illinois, we have the editor of AMJ, the chief editor, you know, very clear. I had never read AMJ. I had read ASQ and SMJ. I had never, it was not in the William James Library at you know, uh, in the Department of Sociology, it was not in that library. I had never read. So I went back, you know, like, I, I didn't think, you know, there was no Google, there was no, so I went back to the library and I looked like desperate for a cat, you know, for American Management Journal. Because, you know, I knew about American Economic Review, American Sociological Review, American Journal of Sociology, and I couldn't find it. It's like, oh my God, like these people. Then I went to, I went to, I crossed the river, I went over to HVR, and you know, I kind of like realized that I was looking at the wrong journal. And yeah, so anyway, so that was my other, you know, like that, that tells you how unprepared I was, you know, how unprepared I was. No job talk, nothing, you know, like, but you know, that's how, you know, basically when I got there, I got a joint appointment at the Institute, because you know, my dissertation had a lot of labor issues already, so I got to the Institute of Labor and Employment Relations. I had a 25% appointment there, and I was the only female in the faculty, and the students were 75% female. So I think they wanted to hire me because they needed a female teaching comparative employment systems. And then my other 75% appointment was at the College of Business. Um, so, you know, going, so I just wanna say this for the record, but you know, going to Illinois was the best decision of my life. Uh, you know, I had a great time. I did my second PhD there. You know, like I learned so much from everybody. You know, like we, it's like an incredibly stimulating, you know, academically, um, intellectually stimulating place. You know, it's like, yeah. it's a very collegial place. It was like yeah. doing a second PhD. So it was, you know, it was wonderful, wonderful. That is that is fantastic. Lovely, lovely yeah. stories. So, um, so you not only you know brushed up on your knowledge of RPV and AMJ, you also uh, published a seminal piece in two thousand three, right? So you published your uh, the dissertation, the piece from dissertation, as well as you know a major piece came out at AMJ on cross national diversity of uh, corporate governance with uh, Gregory. Um, Gregory Jackson. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the backstory about that piece? Yeah. So, you know, it was not, it was in, a, it was in AMR. Yeah. Yes, so, AMR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so basically, you know, so basically like the good thing about Illinois is that they were very open-minded, you know, they were very open-minded, you know, starting with Hussein Levlevici. He was, you know, write what you like, you know, like they're really not as concerned with A's and B's and, you know, and actually my very first publication was in org studies because Hussein encouraged me to send it there. And, you know, they were very much about the papers and very collegial. And so, 
you know, I had this, I, I didn't, I was still very intimidated by AMJ. So I wouldn't even dare to send anything there because then Greg Northcott would read it and I would embarrass him because my work, you know, like I just, you know, I had this, I mean, I just, I was, I didn't feel I was prepared. So uh, what happened is that I was at ASA, so I had never met Greg, Gregory Northcott, uh, Greg, uh, Greg Jackson, my co-author. Um, and I was at ASA and I was in this poster session at ASA. And in this poster session, there was myself, uh, Greg Jackson, who at the time had just gotten a PhD in sociology from Columbia University. And he had gone over to work with, um, with I, I, uh, I, I'm blanking the name, Massimo Ayoko in, in Japan, okay? He had worked mm -hmm. on to Japan to work there. Mm -hmm. And then there were three other people, which I remember the names perfectly, who were very high profile people, okay? One of them came just to say hello, but the other two, I think they were too embarrassed because it was a poster session. It was really beyond, you know, below them. So they didn't show up. <laughs> so it was easy, you know, like I was a first year, doc, you know, first year PhD, and Gregory and I is like, okay, clearly it's just you and I. Uh, any audience that we had had disappeared by that point because, you know, the big shots were not there. And so Gary and I started talking and he had written basically the same dissertation that I had written, but comparing, you know, and the framework was more similar countries. We were looking for more similar countries. And Gregory had written exactly the same dissertation, very similar for uh, Japan and um, Japan and, and Germany. So we decided to we decided to you know put together our work and write this piece for this special issue, uh, for you know no, it was not a, I don't remember if it was a special issue but for a, for AMR, and we sent it to AMR and I have to say you know I mean I did something which you know I would recommend nobody to do it which is probably I had read very few AMRs, and when we sent it to AMR I'm sure it was a big big disaster, but. Two things happened that I think made that paper published and better. The first one is that we had the best editor ever, which was, you know, it was, you know, my second editor. And the first one was not very involved, but the second one, so the editor was Bert Canella. Of course, I'll never forget. So he just gave us so much feedback. I was like, okay, let's do this. It's very, you know, he, I mean, we said really, it was something horrible. I'm sure it was like 60 pages because we didn't read the thing. I mean, because, I had no clue, right? So this editor and the reviewers were amazing. Mm -hmm. And so the editor was great. And then at Illinois, I had amazing people that helped me. Like, you know, I remember I wanted to put something about property rights. Mm -hmm. So I went to Joe Maconi and I said, okay. And then he refreshed my memory. He's like, okay, yeah, I did all that in economics. You know, all these, all these I, I already knew. Like, so, so that, then I went to Matt Kratz. He read my first five pages and he wrote, I think 15 pages of comments. You know, so she's like, he could only go the first five pages. He had so many comments. He's right. like, okay, let, let's just stop here because I can't right. take it anymore. Right. So I, as I said, that, that was really, you know, and then I went to Andrew Said and it's like, you know, gave me comments and, you know, and to, you know, Mike Pratt, you know, and, you know, they were great people and they just helped me. You know, I just decided at that point, and, you know, and this is another piece of advice for the PhDs and for the system professors. Right. You know, up to that point, and I think because, you know, Harvard was a great place to learn, but it was very entrepreneurial. You had to be very self-disciplined. It was not very collegial. I mean, it was sincerely not very collegial. Mm -hmm. It was not, 
you know, it was very aggressive, very competitive, mm -hmm. but uh, I realized that people were helping each other and that asking for help. So my mm -hmm. advice, you know, to young people mm -hmm. would be ask for help, you know, like, if you get a stop, ask for help. And th at that point is when I came out, it's like, well, swim or swim. Like, if I don't ask for help, this is yeah. not going to get published because they're asking me all these things. You know, Burke and Ella was giving me. And some of the things, I didn't even understand what he was asking me. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, helping me. So I think that, you know, I mean, the fact that we brought from sociology some ideas, but that mm -hmm. was not enough. You know, that having a great editor, great reviewers, which I have no clue who the reviewers were, and then, you know, being able to have these amazing colleagues that yeah. allow me to have the time to work on it. And, yeah. you know, because they also gave me great teaching yeah. load and they treated yeah. me very well. So I think that was, um, yeah. Well, which, which also, you know, it's, a, it's, also, it's also a major, major piece, right? A major hit, um, which uh, now have over 2,000 citations. So did you, did you expect that at the time when writing this? No, oh, no, I mean, why, I, I didn't even why, know what why the do you think was. It's, yeah, why do you think it had, the piece itself had, you know, had a success it had, um, in retrospectively? Why do I think it had a, a success? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think like my other piece, like my other AMR, you know, yeah. maybe I, now I have four AMRs, but, you know, my, my other one, like the CSR one that we can talk about it later, if you like. Yeah. I think the, um, I think you know, one of the things that possibly is well done is that it's easy to understand. It's not very complicated. It's like, I think any of you could have thought about it, but it's just like I brought something to, you know, I was very concerned. And at the time I was also teaching comparative employment systems. So I brought labor and, you know, at the time I was still a Marxist from the Department of Sociology. So I didn't call, you know, I don't know what the box is now, but I didn't call owners, owners. I mean, I think I called them capital, you know, like from... Right. Marxism, and I think, you know, Bert made me change it to owners, uh, because, you know, we were talking about, uh, but I think the reason why it was successful, you know, why, you know, it got some attention is because it was very, written in a very plain English, mm -hmm. not big, not, not a, a lot of big words, and we were, you know, introducing, it's like, okay, if you look outside of the U.S., you know, this was my passion, and even today, you know, and I have here Chris Crossland, who has been also an editor of mine, and he's been very encouraging because, you know, like when you get out of the U.S. and the work like that he has done on managerial discretion as well, when you get out of the U.S. and when you do comparative work, it really forces you to be a lot more analytical, you know, because you can really compare how things are different. So this has been, you know, my passion and my competitive advantage that if you do comparative work, it forces you to be, you know, more analytical, I think, you know, like, um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's the, yeah. That's great, that's great. Well, so you mentioned the CSR piece, so let's talk about that. Um, this is a piece- Okay, of, so the CSR, uh, CSR piece, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. So, so it came out in 2007, which is a year after uh, you got tenure, right? So it is related to corporate governance, but a little bit, you know, still a different topic. Um, so how, do you, yeah. how did that come about? Okay, so, you know, this was completely different, you know, so it took a long time because I, I think, it was actually accepted much earlier, but I think it took one year and a half, if not two years, to get on print. Mm -hmm. But basically, this was uh, very simple. Um, so, you know, um, you know, those of you who are at Illinois, Urbana Champaign is a small community, and I lived in the faculty ghetto, and the faculty ghetto is a place near the university where you can walk. And so the houses were houses that, 
were owned by uh, people who had had the house because you know not many people move out of Illinois or Champion Urbana at the time. So all the houses, which you know obviously compared to Boston, they were very affordable houses. Most of the houses had master gardens, so they had beautiful, beautiful gardens. And these people were moving out of these houses, selling it to new professors. And they were very concerned that people like me, who had grown in Barcelona, you know, I, I actually grown, you know, in the countryside as well, but they, they couldn't tell the difference between a weed and a prairie flower. So we all had mentors. So, you know, we had mentors in this garden, you know, so I lived in a street that was called Vermont Avenue. And there was a Vermont Avenue Garden Club. And the only goal of that club is that we wouldn't destroy the gardens that they had curated for so many years. And, you know, and, you know, they were very like, you know, so we would, you know, I had like, I had two children by that time and I had a little trolley, a red trolley, and we would go from garden to garden with a red trolley and I would just put drinks in there like vodka and, and I would mix cocktails for the ladies. The ladies were 70s and 80s. You know, like we would go around and it's like, oh, this is a, this is this, this is that. And, you know, like we would, there would be, each of us had a mentor. And, you know, I, we would go with my red trolley, all the houses, and they would educate us. So I met some other professors and two of the people that I met were uh, Cindy Williams, who was a corporate law professor. And she had published a very, very influential article in the Harvard Law Review mm -hmm. on disclosure in the SEC. So like this is a very, very influential uh, article in CSR disclosure, uh, you know, for corporate law. And then, uh, and then the other person that I met in these, you know, tours that started like at 4 p.m. And then, you know, like basically the old ladies, because they didn't realize what was in the dream, maybe sometimes, you know, like uh, they, sometimes they cried about the disasters that we made. The other person that I met there was Deborah Rapp. And Deborah Rapp was a very micro, I O psychologist who had been trained as a justice ethics. Mm -hmm. And we became good friends, you know, together with other people. But uh, at some point, you know, I told them, and she was interested in justice and a little bit on sustainability. But at some point I told them, okay, you know, I really don't have the time to hang out with you. If we're gonna hang out together, let's, let's do something productive. <laughs> So let's do something productive. And so I saw this call. This was a this this was a, a special issue, right. and I said, "Let's get together." When I put, you know, it was at the time, you know, some of my children to bed. Uh, even though I'm a, you know, I'm typically a, you know, 5 a.m., 4 a.m. person in the morning. But at that time, mm -hmm. so let's get together at 8 p.m. Let's open a bottle of wine and let's start discussing what's wrong with sustainability with CSR. And etc. So you know, so we you know, like every week we would meet at eight o'clock. You know, I don't know, one day a week at eight o'clock, and you know, we would open one or two bottles of wine, and we would draw, and we would discuss, and then you know, like Cindy, you know, I would say TMT, and Cindy's like TMT, what's that TMT? And Deborah would say the antique justice, like you know, time out, what is this? You know, like and so we ended up writing a paper you know, mm -hmm. that at the end, because we had talked to each other so much mm -hmm. that I have to say that paper, when we sent it to AMR, was a conditional accept. Mm -hmm. Because we, wow. you know, the paper, you know, has, you know, we had talked to each other. It was really, because, you know, they had never read an AMR. They had yeah. never, you know, they were in their field, but we, it was really interdisciplinary. And, um, you know, and it was really fun to work with them. We were really concerned about the issues. Uh, we were, you know, 
um, you know, I was a corporate governance person, but I thought that it was very important, you know, the decisions were made within corporate yeah. governance. And yeah, um, yeah. So, awesome. so that's how yeah. we, and then we wrote, I think we wrote, you know, maybe six more together, you know, we became very good friends and yeah. Yeah, so, so yes. gardening club and yeah, gardening club and cocktail. Uh, that's how it all started. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I yeah. uh, let me uh, let me move on to the you know to the service side. Um, and um, so you did amazing amount of editorial services, really a ton. So why? <laughs> excuse me for asking, but why do you do it? <laughs> okay, so you know, um, I did it because you know pe people are, people ask me. And at some point I realized I had to say yes, but I had to say yes for the right journal, right? Um, I had to say, so, and I felt, I also felt that my career, I had great editors and that it was my time to give back, you know, to, it was my time to do it, you know, like, uh, so I just felt like I had, you know, great editors who had really mm -hmm. educated me and helped me make my articles better. And I just thought it was time for me to do it. And um, so some journals asked me early on, and I just didn't feel it was the right journal for me. But then Work Science, I felt it was a really funky journal that you could publish about, you know, opera singers, or you could publish about, you know, anything, and that it was pretty decentralized, and that they were concerned about the story. Like, um, yeah, so I just felt it was the right, you know, and I have to say, Zur Shapira completely like brainwashed me and he was a great editor. We had a great relationship. And so I said yes to him. Yeah. You know, before that I had done corporate governance international review, but that's like a happy journal, you know, in the sense that you don't reject papers, you are very up to date um, with the corporate governance as a field, not so much as a you know, like as a you know, like as a niche journal. It was just a fun journal. But, you know, I, I, learned, right. I learned a lot, a lot from work science, you know, from reviewers like you, uh, <laughs> Joe, amazing reviewers, and from Russ Van, and, you know, Young, and Weishi, all the, you know, all these people, all of you, I'm sure I'm forgetting all the names. Um, uh, Junho, you know, everybody, I mean, I, liked, I learned so much from my, my reviewers. I learned, you know, and I also keep me on my toes with the literature, you know, you have to be very up to date. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's very hard work mm -hmm. and you know it's very hard to get out of work science and you know uh, mm -hmm. good luck Samina <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard so yeah. when when AMR asked when you know when Sherry Sherry Thatcher asked me to join AMR and, and Rich here is also my co-associate uh, editor I just thought you know it would be great to work with her and I just thought, you know, AM, you know, AMR, even though I started, you know, from economics and being like a hardcore econometrician, right. you know, I'm very interested in, in, in theory. And I just thought, you know, it would be a nice way to get out of work science, do three years. And I also yeah. miss the team. Like, I, I also like the team. And I knew that uh, Sherry would do like a lot of teamwork. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that, um, yeah. Yeah, really, so really I, happy. This is why I do it because you know yeah. I learn a lot from the reviewers. I mean, I I know, you know, I I just think I believe in the reviewer system. I believe on good editors, mm -hmm. and you know, so, you know, some of you are editors at SMJ, at SEJ, at you know different, you know. Mm -hmm. So I just yeah, 
so, so given that, I mean, given your employee experiencing the editorial process, uh, any advice you have for authors or you know, even editors about that process or how do you think about it? Yeah, so, you know, so I definitely learn and I definitely, you know, and, you know, I just, you know, I definitely learn a lot and, you know, we make mistakes because we're humans. So I am sure when I started, I rejected papers that maybe should have been accepted. And I am sure I, you know, I might accept papers that should be rejected. You know, we are humans and there's always an error there. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the, you know, the advice, I guess, you know, so I, the advice I would give editors, and this is like how I'm going into AMR and how I evolve within org science is that to be more open-minded, you know, like to be, to, you know, if it's a good idea, you know, if it's a good idea, but, you know, the data is not quite there, but, you know, it's very, the data is never going to be there. There's no perfect paper. So can we, is there enough there that it's a compromise? So I have become more, more lenient, like looking like for a really good idea, for a really good story, like, you know, something might not be right, but if it's not a, like a flaw, you know, like, so that, this is why, like, I think AMR is going to be very liberating because we don't have to worry about identification. We don't have to worry about some of the, the issues that they are more concerning, you know, in empirical papers. Uh, so, you know, so I would say to, you know, to editors, and that's what I learned, is to be, you know, to, and I have always tried, because I also felt very well treated by editors, to be the author's, you know, uh, ally. Um, the, and I guess for authors, I would say that it is very important. I mean, I don't know if this is very basic, but I think it's very important. And these mistakes I made at the very beginning, but it's very important to be able to join a conversation in that journal and speak the language of that journal. So, you know, try to figure out, you know, like what, what is the debate that is going on in that journal? You know, like if the debate, if there's a debate in ASQ, don't try to publish in SMJ or in org science on that debate, you know, like it's very, so, so kind of like see the debate that goes on and join that debate, number one. And second, and this is even more salient when you are like finance and, you know, like bringing from finance or from psychology or from sociology, like, um, so this is one. And then the language of that journal, you know, like be very aware of the language of that journal. I think that's very important. And, you know, like, and, you know, I mean, I guess in, in my AMR, like my first AMR, I made the mistake to send a paper that was not ready. I mean, it wouldn't get, it would get the, the you know, desk rejected today. So just, you know, like there are so many reasons that now papers get desk rejected. So try to get it as good as possible to get beyond the desk reject. And there are things that you can do. You know, if they say 30 pages, don't get 35, get 30. If the tables are like that, if it's, you know, if it's, SMJ wants the tables in a certain way. Don't do it differently, you know. Um, right. So this is to begin with. And then, you know, have people to read it before you send it. Have people to give you comments. Um, so I guess these are, you know, the, the basic, um, right. yeah, just kind of basic. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me also move on to your, you know, other side of the service you've been doing. Uh, super active leadership in professional organizations. So thinking back to the test you take before, you are the boss, Ruth. Um, no. so, so let me let me ask about your specific, the zooming to your most recent initiative um, in SM, at SMS uh, uh, in the capacity of board members on, on gender, gender issue in academia. 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, okay. No, so just as a footnote, I just, I just, you know, these days I'm listening a lot to books. <laughs> I just listen to Super Bosses <laughs> by Sid Finkelstein. And it's really, really fun to listen, you know, like really interesting. So any of you teaching leadership, you know, a super boss is Don Hambrick, and some of you have him as your uh, co former colleague or advisor, and I agree. He's, and Don Hambrick re recommended to me to uh, listen or read The Transaction Man, and that's another good book uh, that I'm listening at the moment. But, uh, so, you know, the, the gender thing. So, you know, basically, so I, I guess another part of my advice in general is, and maybe this is because I, I, I move to, I moved to, you know, to management being a complete orphan. Like I didn't know anybody, you know, like I remember my colleagues at Illinois, you know, my great colleagues had come from Wharton or Michigan and, you know, at the academy, they went to their parties. I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any network. So I just think, you know, and I didn't do it strategically or deliberately, but I guess I was very thirsty to meet friends and to, you know, like meet people and be part of a community. So I think it's very important to have your community and it could be two communities, like it doesn't have to be one, right? It could be your community of, you know, like, as you know, as some of you know, like I have a reading group uh, of people who do CSR at corporate governance. I had it at Illinois. I have this community of assistant professors. It was a reading group of that, a safe group. Now uh, in Boston, I have a reading group of corporate governance and CSR, where we basically read rejections and we, you know, we also drink Japanese whiskey and, <laughs> and, but you know, like, it's like, it's important to have communities. So, you know, so even a small communities, in, whether it's communities of working mothers or, you know, your own communities. And one thing that we learned, so, you know, like, so I've been, you know, I have different communities, but definitely, Definitely SMJ, SMS and SMJ is a journal that I feel very, very close to because I understand the economics, but I understand the empirics. I'm very interested in the phenomena driven, even though, you know, I'm a theorist as well. But, and uh, so, you know, I felt, you know, AIB and SMS, you know, obviously STR, but STR is a bigger, a, a, you know, STR, you know, within, um, within strategy is definitely a community as well, you know, but AOM is way, you know, probably way too big. This is why it's great what you're doing now, Samina, especially, and all the team, that to have more of a community. But I think it's very important for junior people to have communities, and these communities might be changing, and at some point of your life, you might want a community that is like, okay, I'm gonna go into that community to convince them that they're doing great, great work in modeling, but they need to do great work in modeling and sustainability, or, and something else, like I'm just gonna go there with a mission. Or sometimes like I wanna support groups. Sometimes is, you know, as you change, as you evolve, you might, you know, join different communities. So, um, you know, so I got involved with SMS, I guess first, you know, with the corporate governance, you know, I, uh, leadership um, uh, interest group, and, uh, and then global strategy. These were very small communities. Some people are here in this call, very, very active. Uh, John Bundy, Craig. Um, so, you know, and then, then I, you know, I got elected to the board. Thank you, all of you for, uh, you know, and it's been very, very interesting because it gives you a completely different view. And I think I was part of this generation that had transitioned from the old guard to the new, you know, no, no longer now younger, but to the new generation. And there was a lot of work to do. 
And, uh, you know, we did a survey, so now I'm getting to the gender. We did a survey, uh, and this was the post-Berlin, you know, and post-Berlin fiasco uh, with, uh, I mean, I actually didn't see Famina saw it. <laughs> the dance, the very controversial dance. And, you know, there was a survey about, about uh, women uh, in SMS. And one of the results of the survey, and this was, you know, we had a task force from the board. And um, one of the findings it was that, you know, many people perceive SMS as an all white male, you know, network, all boy network uh, society. And so that's how, you know, we, you know, basically we started with membership to try to think about ways to give basically opportunities for women and men, both of them, you know, for men to be more educated about how they could include women and for women to think about, you know, how they can be scholars, how can they be teachers, how can they be researchers, how can they, you know, administrators, you know, like, in this profession, how they can be women. And, you know, there are many different views on this because, you know, even in these calls or, you know, we had a networking breakfast at SMS in Minneapolis and we invited men, men and female, Samina was in one of the tables. And they were like, you know, and everybody that came, um, you know, sending advance issues and there are so many issues, right. so many things. And there are also different points of view on how to approach them. And, you know, obviously this is a very individual, um, you know, individual perspective, but I, I have to say, I have to say that, you know, if I look back, if I look back, when I first joined Illinois, I came from this, you know, elite, elite institution, which is Harvard, which I had never, ever heard the word touchdown, what else, uh, field goal, I mean, I don't know what are the other words, uh, home run, never, ever, ever. I had just married a person that I had no idea that he was interested in sports, that he was crazy about college basketball. <laughs> Not only that, he was, as many of you know, my husband was, uh, he played for Northwestern. You know, he, he was on the team for four years, but you know, at Harvard, people didn't talk about that. They didn't talk about the sports. Mm -hmm. So he was in heaven. <laughs> You know, and now my son wants to go to a college, you know, a college that has college sports. But, you know, at the time, I didn't realize that, and I was very mad at the beginning because, you know, we would go to a meeting and they would be like, oh, that was a home run. It's like, hey, time out. What is that? That was good or bad? So, uh, you know, and I, I remember at the beginning, I was kind of mad. And then I, I kind of joined them because they taught me how to, you know, they taught me sports. And, you know, I, I love basketball at Illinois. They were really good at the time. But basically what I'm trying to say is that, you know, if we educate, if we give tools to women, you know, and, and, and you know, many of the questions here are from uh, male who are head of the departments, who are colleagues, and that sometimes they're trying to help women and they're actually not helping them. So, you know, right. to feel less, so, you know, this was the goal, like, and this is the goal. So things about, you know, sexual harassment, which is a hard one, but also negotiate you know, how do you negotiate, not, not only salary, but other things, time, schedule, and how, do, how you know, uh, maternity leave, um, you know, like all sorts of, you know, work-life balance, how do you ask for help, and, you know, how do you say, you know, please, let's not have meetings after five, because I have to go pick up my kids, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and not feel like when you're an assistant professor, it's like, oh, you know, and, you know, I guess at Illinois, this was a little bit more, more salient than in other places because 
um, you know, one of the spouses didn't have to work. You know, didn't have to work because the life was not expensive. So many spouses were at home, but mm -hmm. so I, I, you know, I just kind of like looking back, I just felt like, you know, like it would have been nice to have more yeah. tools. And then within SMS, I, I really feel that, you know, some women feel they are not part of the network. Yeah. And it's like, okay, how do you network as a woman? You know, you're not, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you, you might not need to golf. You can do other things, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Very nice. So yeah, so this is, so you know, Becky. I have to you know put a, a plug for Becky Kohi. Uh, she's an HR person at uh, Cornell. So she and I have been organizing webinars and you know trying to um, kind of like address these issues. You know, with also you know male right. and female, and just trying to be more blunt about it and you know educate ourselves, even our you know myself and everybody. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Um, so let me let me ask uh, one more question uh, before we move on to the audience Q&A. Let me also say, uh, please put in you know, your question on the chat and uh, we'll, we'll call, actually Pitoch will call you uh, when, we move, uh, when we're in that section. Um, so Ruth, I, I wonder, you know, given the, you know, the discussion we've had, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this question that I've been wondering as well. So, uh, so is, is globalization under assault? <laughs> and and uh, what are your thoughts and devices for international students and scholars? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, like we are not, um, we, we are not in a really great place, I would say, in terms of, you know, everything that's going on in the world, you know, and some of it like the, co you know, the COVID didn't help. I mean, we didn't ask for COVID, but the other, you know, as we know, the COVID is affecting mostly to, you know, uh, um, people at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, so there's populism, there's like, there are, you know, some other, you know, there, so there are big, so I would say like, while there is, and I wrote, I wrote something about, with Beat Hennitz and Joan Oxley about this, you know, like yeah. while for the strategy organization, we had the special issue on this, while there is maybe a plenty of trade, you know, plenty of, you know, financialization of the world, what happens is that uh, people, you know, people and access to uh, resources, those are definitely not equally uh, distributed around the world. And this is like, and the problem is much more, you know, it's getting a lot more accentuated, right? So I think it's, it's no longer even globalization. I mean, I think it's like, you know, what it's called like the wicked problems, right? Like these mm -hmm. huge problems, mm -hmm. wicked problems that range from, you know, uh, range from, you know, climate change, social, you know, inequality, um, you know, the role of labor and employer, employ, you know, the, the fragility of employment, you know, particularly in, in the United States, but also in emerging markets. But I would say, you know, I am in Spain now, and I have to say, you know, in Spain, we, even though we're in Southern Europe, we have a safety net. You know, anybody who was, you know, we have a much, much stronger safety net. There is free health for everybody you know they take somebody in a helicopter and you know it, it does it's not the ministry of spain it's not like a very you know it is it, they don't care who it is you know like so there's a lot more equality there is not a huge difference in salaries um 
So, I mean, I guess, you know, like just, you know, at, at a very broad level, at a very broad level, there is a system, you know, at the system level, the system is completely broken. The system, you know, and th there is, there are, there, we are in a crisis. We are in a world crisis. And I am, you know, I actually have great, um, I, I, I'm up at, at night thinking about, you know, how, how, I mean, how I can help this incredible social inequality that you see, you know, we see it in, we see it in Spain because we have immigrants that come, you know, and immigrants that come from Northern Africa, but, you know, we also see, you know, in Beirut, I mean, extreme, extreme problems, you know, which is systemic problems, you know, by, you know, um, triggered by corruption, triggered by poor government, triggered by irresponsible business, triggered by, you know, immoral citizens. So, I mean, it, it's so big. And this is like, you know, I guess, I mean, I don't know how much it has to do with globalization, but it is a global pro problem. It is a huge global problem. And, um, and I don't know, like, you know, as I told you before this right. talk, I was listening to Paul Adler, and you know, I've also been reading his book, The 99% Economy, mm -hmm. which is a book that suggests that you know we need to basically move to socialism <laughs> it's a pretty radical book but basically says you know the way we have it we cannot fix it and because you know because you know the way the world was designed after neoliberalism it was designed in a way way that the that we were trying to control governments but we have not controlled the corporation and the power of the corporation so you know some of the work that i do like some of the work on owners is I mean, in the United States and actually all over the world, there's a concentration of private, of private assets so big in so few hands that that is so dangerous. So, you know, how comes that all over the world now we have people who are business people? Mm -hmm. You know, how come that we have as a former, you know, the, you know, the Exxon CEO, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro, you know, this, I mean, this is huge, huge problem. Uh, so, because, you know, business has become so powerful and, you know, kind of like the founders of the social democratic, they didn't plan for business to be so powerful. So I think, you know, it requires, I mean, this is kind of like the globalization, but it requires like a reset of the entire system. And, um, you know, it requires, you know, that we as, you know, we as researchers, Right. do work that is relevant we as educators you know do you know kind of like implant that that we join you know associations and that we so you know i'm trying to do a little bit more of that as well um to try to impact on how we can help you know how we can help because i, I just think it's like a such the magnitude is yeah. so big and the urgency you know climate change is like a, you know we saw COVID stop some of the emissions but it was nothing i mean it's way beyond so this is so now we have a problem right like in northeastern we rely a lot on international students i teach a lot of international students mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to come mm -hmm. so what do we say to the you know like i had a physical scholar who was supposed to come mm -hmm. so what do we you know like i guess to be in a more positive note what do we do what do we do that now we're in this polarized world and I think what we do is exactly what we're doing now here, which is let's build communities, even if they are virtual communities. Let's build these communities that people can brainstorm, that they can think, that they can, you know, I, I think that's like, you know, uh, because every one of us has actually a lot of agency. 
Right. You know, so right. other than the government and the corporation, we also need to think about the individual agents. So this is right. kind of, I mean, I don't know, like, sorry about the detour, Excellent. but yeah. it's, uh, you know, you know, I think it's beyond globalization now. It's like, you know, it's like, it's beyond kind You're of, right. yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So with that, um, we're going to, you know, close off this part of the interview. Thank you so much, Ruth. Um, and uh, we're going to go into the Q&A. But before that, let me invite uh, all of you to, if you can, show, show your video. And we'll take a group photo um, on Zoom. And uh, it'll be a memory for all of us. OK. So uh, Pitosh, are you, will you be taking the photo? Are you awake? Yes, I'm all <laughs> All right, so let me call to three. One, two, three. Do we get it? Uh, we good? Uh, he's muted, so I think so, yeah. I don't, yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you, everyone. So- uh, Perfect, thank you. So with that, we're going to move to the second part of the Q&A. I already saw questions piling up. And let me pass it over to my, um, to my colleague, uh, Peter Shaden, and who's going to you know, call out on you folks. Peter, you're muted. No, no longer. I don't think so. I think he's frozen. I think he's frozen, Joe. He's frozen. I want to give, uh, meanwhile, I want to give to, uh, uh, I don't know how you say, a cheer to my co-authors here. From my very first co-author, Young Lee. <laughs> yeah, he just published, I think, his first, uh, or is in the process of publishing his first theory paper. <laughs> Yeah. To all my co-authors and my super co-authors, uh, you know, Wei Shi, who is also here, I don't know if he's still here, but who, who make me, who keep me embarrassed by not my lack of productivity, keep me on my toes. So <laughs> having good and fun co-authors is very, very important to have a happy life. Okay, I think we lost Pitosh. Um, so let me, yeah. let me, let me start uh, by, and we'll see, you know, I'm sure he will come back. Uh, so let me start by calling on Rich. You call um, also here. Rich, you had a question about um, unanswered questioning strategy. Yeah, so <clears throat> my question is, uh, what are the most important unanswered questions in strategy at this point? Uh, what do we not know at this point that we really should? Okay, so I think, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not a, I'm really not trained as a strategy person at, at all. I actually never taken a, yeah, probably I've never taken a strategy class, although I teach global strategy. Oh, then, so sorry, I, then let me change the question a little bit. So what, what then would you say are the most important unanswered questions about corporate governance? Okay. Uh, or about global business? Yeah, yeah. So Pick one of those. Yeah. What do we yeah, not know so, about those that we should? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, about, I think in corporate governance, um, you know this this so there are two two you know one is like at the at the at the like micro level i am very interested in in you know understanding the owner like at the more at the micro and i don't have the skills to do that but 
more at the micro kind of cognitive behavioral level, like, you know, this work that, you know, Rasban is doing a little bit more like at the cognitive level. Uh, I think, you know, looking at the agency, you know, and that all the actors have an agency. And I think within a strategy, we could learn a lot from psychology and just kind of like starting to, you know, unpack that, that box at the individual level. What are the constraints? What are the enablers? You know, what are the incentives? You know, like at that level, I think, um, you know, within corporate governance, I think there could be some work done on that, some more work. Then I'm, I'm still very interested in owners, very, very interested in owners, like foreign owners, sovereign wealth funds, family owners, like how the owners have different incentives towards different firm outcomes, such as, you know, investing in R&D, investing in sustainability, you know, the mission of the firm, how they treat the employees. I think the backbone of a corporation is the owners, so to understand what more, what drives these owners, and it's not only money, you know, and how we can design a system that this corporation can be better corporate citizens. Um, so I think that, you know, like kind of get more into the business and society uh, part. And, you know, corporate governance is important because corporate governance is where the decisions are structured and where you empower one actor and not the other. So this is, but, you know, I really would like to tie it to questions that are important for society, you know, like to stay competitive, but not only, you know, financially competitive, but also in terms of innovation that I don't know so much about, but social innovation in terms of, you know, benefit society, you know, edu you know empower labor. Um, so, you know, I think this is kind of like this kind of at that level, you know, and, you know, this changes a lot by country, like by, you know, which kind of country you are, which kind of setting. So this is, yeah, thank you for the question. Great. Um, let me ask. I think Ming-Jer Ming, Ming has a question. Sorry, I'm like taking over, but I shouldn't. <laughs> that's, that's good. I, I only see nine people because my thing is kind of. Ah, so Ming-Jer, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh... Uh, first, you know, Joe, thank you for the the wonderful interview. Um, the, and also, um, Ruth, I'm not sure whether we have met, uh, but I, I almost I always enjoy your work at the song. And, uh, and and let, let me, you know, given is I, I want to turn this Q and A into more like interact interactive discussion. I think it, I think Rich raised a great question, and perhaps I can I can help to simplify you know his question from my viewpoint and, and then i can pose you the question i am interested in i think the rich's question uh, to me is a very simple question uh, i think the first part would be what is the role of business strategy um, as an academic field today and, and then and we can expand into the second half of, of the sentence in today's divided and polarized, uh, or even whatever kind of you know, adjective you want to use, like you know, post-globalization world and so on. So I think that's really the big question of our time. And 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 then let given that you know Asim is here and uh, and given his interest in both political strategy and and tech and and so on. And Ruth, I think your specialty in global strategy and among many others. I think my question would be, um, 
you know, this is also one of the, the primary event of our time, and which is likely to last for the, the, the next three or, or four decades, even beyond the November election. How, how can we approach or even study the tensions between US and China? And certainly, you know, taking the competitive dynamics perspective, I have my own thoughts, but people like Asim, given your interest in, in non-market strategy and technology and so on, and, and Ruth, and, and among many others. So I'm just, just wondering, or Ruth may say to, to us, now this is, is not a part of the things that we should study and we should even care as a strategy scholar. So I think those kind of things, I think, is very relevant and very generic and, and also very meaningful. And, and many of us, and even in this audience, I myself came from Taiwan and I can add to the complexity to the whole phenomenon just from the Taiwanese viewpoint. And then we have, you know, now India, and, and certainly I think, Samina, you're aware of the things going on um, across the border, you know, over the last three months and of this whole pandemic happened. So I think that that perhaps is what, I don't know, Rich, maybe I can't, you know, overstretch uh, what you intend to, to ask, but I, I personally uh, feel that um, it is very much the kind of the question um, as an academic, I, I would like to have some clarity, even for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you asked, there's a lot, a lot of things to talk about, a lot of things, yeah, a lot of very interesting things. I know. Um, so I'll just kind of briefly, you know, touch on, on, on some of them, but, um, you know, so, you know, one, one, the first one is the role of business strategy. And, you know, I think, I'm here being a little bit inspired by Jim Walsh on the role of business strategy. And I think the role of business strategy is probably like, you know, one way to answer it would be the article that they wrote with Tom Donaldson on shareholder versus stakeholder. Yeah. And these debates that we get hung up on, you know, like we get hung up on these debates, it's like, well, this is not the important debate. So the role of business strategy is not to get hung up on, you know, these, Kind of dichotomous debates, but kind of like to work on something. Use business strategy to solve problems, and not get hung up on these kind of ideological, you know, like the agency theories versus the. So I think the the role of business strategy is to, you know, use the tools in business strategy to solve and to at least uh, tackle, approach, have debates about, you know, real, li real life problems. And one problem could be, you know, one problem, which is a real problem is this tension, the U S China tension. That's like a real problem because, you know, because of the global value chain and how it affects so many things, so many things in how the world works, how the economic world, how the social world works. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, like in terms of the, um, in terms of this divided and polarized world, I think we as academics, we need to do, you know, there are two things that I believe we can do. One is listen, you know, listen, like, you know, and this, you know, this is something that maybe, you know, this is something that I actually Anita McGill, 
uh, Magan said in the presidential address of AOM. They said, meet your opponent in the middle of the road. Listen, listen to the, why, what is the argument of the people who are against climate change? What are their arguments? Listen to other people and try to understand where, where are they coming from? Where are they coming? Why, you know, the people who vote for Trump, where are they coming from? What is their, what are their arguments? I mean, you know, and try to engage on a dialogue with people who have very different views from you and try to, because in that way we can advance, you know, like if we, we are in this polarized world, I mean, you know, the world, like even, you know, I'm in Catalonia, there are people who want to be independent, there are people who do not, you know, they are not talking to each other, we're not going to make progress. We cannot, you know, make progress. In the U.S., the same. It's so polarized. You know, the COVID has turned, as you know, into a political thing. Um, so I think, you know, meeting people in the road, and we as academics are trained to listen to different debates. Uh, so I think this is important. And translating, you know, being able to be a facilitator, to translate. And then, you know, the other thing that I... You know, I have been, you know, I have done in a very, very minuscule, but that has been kind of one of my, you know, fun things to do is to try to find, find different audiences for the same message. So, you know, like I have published in law reviews, I have published in ethics journals, I have published in international journals, strategy journals, Gobi journals. So, you know, and I really would like to, you know, like move into more practitioner journals like that actually the people making decisions read, you know, like some of you have published in the HBR online. So I think those have impact. So if we could, you know, we have no impact, zero, zero, zero impact in the real world. So if we could start getting out of our bubble and trying to, you know, translate our work. And I think now actually, now that social media and that, you know, we're all more, a lot more virtual, um, you know, I, I, like, I guess like the, the, like the block of, of you know, the, the block of Steve Pinkelstein, you know, many people, many, you know, CEOs follow it. So if we could start having some of this influence, I think, you know, like using business, you know, going back to the business strategy, using the tools that we know, you know, what is, you know, what is competition versus cooperation? Why business should be doing both at the same time? Why seeking only profits is might not be long, you know, sustainable long term, you know, and educating, you know, because we are educators, you know, this is what we are, educating communities, educating decision makers, educating our students, educating each other, you know, and you know, even as editors, as reviewers, thinking about, you know, at SMJ actually they try to do that a lot. They are very worried at SMJ. You know, how does this have an impact? You know, why is it relevant? How is it relevant? Um, right. So I think this is, you know, and I would, I think that all the, prob all the political problems are actually business problems, you know, because it's so intertwined. So, you know, the tension US-China is a huge, huge problem for, you know, global strategy, huge problem. And, you know, Wei Xi and I, who is in this call, we have looked at this. You know, like how, you know, like how, you know, foreign investors, when you have foreign investors in the U.S., how they lobby, what do they do? How do they try to influence government? And so, you know, so it is so intertwined that I honestly don't think you can, and, you know, this is probably going back to, you know, all the sociology and political sociology. You cannot study business forgetting, you know, the environment, forgetting the politics in business because, 
business decisions are about power, are about authority, you know, and this is, this is business strategy. Who has the power to make decisions? Who has the resources to make decisions? So whether you model it like Rich does, model it, or whether you study it as a Sim and Zhao, you know, they are there, they are there. It's like, it's all about power, you know. So yeah. I think this should be very much at our, and this is why when I answer my question, I think we need to go back at the agent, at the people or teams of people making decisions and say, okay, what does motivate you? What are your constraints? You know, and the, you know, there is a, there is some paper that I published at SMJ, thanks to Craig Crossland, is like, it looks at that. If you, if you are not entrenched and you can make more long-term decisions, which decisions are you going to make and who are they going to be good for? Um, so just kind of, you know, like how is, you know, looking more at the agent, looking, looking more, more at the constraints and these are political constraints. These are, yeah. Yeah, quite so this is a long way to answer, but I think you asked very, very, very good questions that they're very hard to answer, but they are very, very important. This, no, is, actually, this is fantastic. Actually, Zhao, and, yeah. I think, Zhao, you can try to answer this same question, I, given your <laughs> quote, Chinese I, and Qinghua background. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try, but I'm looking forward to hear how you think about it tomorrow. So, audience, yes. um, yeah, come yeah. back we tomorrow. Said, yeah. <laughs> so, I see Are that Pitosh is. I see that Pitosh is back. Hey. Thank you. So, hey, um, so uh, uh, would you like to continue? Moderating? Yes, perfect. Uh, th yeah, thanks, Yao. Um, I'm back. Apologies for the technology uh, difficulties. Let's. Um, um, I was thinking some questions have been raised um, even before the session that were passed on uh, to. I think one that was echoed now by Craig was raised by some participants uh, beforehand. And this particularly relates to, you know, I'm, you know, we're hearing about Ruth now, and this is, all, this is effectively a superhuman achievement, you know, everything, everything she does. So, you know, a lot of us are wondering, how do you manage this balance? Or how do we get some sense of something that resembles work-life balance? Or, you know, as Craig uh, raises this, do you sleep? Maybe, Craig, do you want to elaborate on this, perhaps? Uh, very quickly, thanks, Patosh. And Ruth, thanks so much for doing this session. I, I know uh, I speak for everyone when I say that you're a, an inspiration and a role model to, to all of us. So thanks for, for taking the time and for uh, giving us a bit more of a window. Uh, I've always been astonished at how much you get done. Uh, it, uh, it terrifies me, actually. And I figure you either just don't sleep or you're much smarter than most of us. And uh, I'm uh, in interested in your production function, as the economists would say. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'll just, I think, well, the, so I'll answer in two ways. First is the work-life balance. And here I'm going to borrow from Samina. <laughs> and I'm going to disagree with former people who have been in this call who just say, oh, you know, throw away your work-life balance. You know, you're not, you know, just work, just work. I think that's a big mistake. You know, um, I think, you know, we all strive for work-life balance, it's unachievable. But some, you know, some some females who work, they say, well, you should just work and do nothing else. I think that's a mistake because you know, I love my work. So that's part of the secret, and I think it's part of all of us here. We love our work. I mean, it's like it's very, you know, sometimes. So I love my work, and so it's hard sometimes to stop working, and you know, if I want to finish something, or so this is kind of the challenge. But I also work. I also love my family and I also love my, my hobbies and doing other things. Uh, so, you know, just for everybody, male and female, because I know, you know, many males are great fathers there. 
who are striving to be, you know, have a work-life balance, you know, just keep working on it. Uh, be, be disciplined about your time, try to be efficient, but, you know, don't try to be a perfectionist. You know, if you look at my nails closely, they're not perfect. <laughs> so sometimes things have to give up, you know. And um, so, you know, just kind of prioritize, prioritize. I would say just prioritize, um, you know, like, you are not going to have a perfect one or the other. Like, I just, I don't feel like I'm perfect in, e in either one, but I am, you know, striving to do what I like. I feel so lucky to be able to do, you know, I think, men, you know, all of us have amazing jobs. Uh, so I just feel very, very fortunate for that. But really, you know, really, really my secret is to work with people that I just, to work with people that are just amazing. So this is really, really, really my secret, you know, to work for people like, I started with Young Lee, uh, who, you know, challenged me, like when he was a doctoral student at Illinois, to, you know, having Wei Shi asking to work with me, and I called Bob Hoskinson as like, should, you know, doing my due diligence, should I work with him? <laughs> and him proving to be superhuman, and an amazing writer, and, you know, like really, fantastic to, you know, Junho Lee, who's a pleasure to work with. So, you know, working with fun people and, you know, I hope sometime I have a chance to work with many of you, but I mean, I think this is, you know, when you work with people that you, you know, love and that you have fun with them and that you know that they're going to call you off. Like if I write a paragraph and it's like, why were you drinking? You know, this makes no sense. And then th that when I write, they can tell me, this makes no sense, or I can tell them and say, you know, I don't like this. And, you know, I think the way we write, we never write one writes this, one write that. We all work on everything, you know, like, so it's like, uh, you know, my you know, my, my Catalan and my Spanish co-authors, you know, when I come in the summer, I work with them here. It, it's, yeah, so I think, you know, when you choose, you know, this is kind of like, I mean, maybe people ask it in the chat, in the chat, when you, choose co-authors is basically also like choosing also kind of a partner, you know, like a partner, like choosing somebody that is going to be a long journey. And there, because there are no quick projects, right? They're like even there are really no quick projects. Don't let anybody lie you about that. So, you know, usually uh, with all my students, I always did one project, at least one, you know, and then, you know, because I felt like it was kind of my obligation to trade them. And it was like, I was getting paid. And I always tell everybody, you know, we get paid to help the doctoral students, to help the assistant professors. So, you know, you know, at Northeastern, I feel a responsibility and, you know, for the assistant professors. And I know Samina feels the same. We, you know, we hire them to be successful. If they don't succeed, it's our failure as well. So, um, so I guess, you know, my, my, my secret is to work with really, really great people. And, um, you know, people that uh, compliment me, people that they're fun to work with, people that, yeah, I feel like I want to look good for them, you know, not to disappoint them, and that I have complete trust, complete trust. Yeah. So, because you, you don't have trust in the people, yeah? Thank you, Ruth. No, that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, addressing Craig's uh, question as well. And I think this, um, highlights a question that uh, Rasvan raised as well. Rasvan, um, would you like to uh, elaborate on that, on, the, on this point, since you raised the, the you know, collaboration part? 
Yes, well, I, I think Rus, uh, in fact, answered uh, uh, at least gave, gave the answer that I was uh, I was hoping for. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, when someone looks at your uh, at your CV, you know, it's uh, it takes a while to uh, to kind of count and read uh, all of the all of the papers that uh, that uh, you wrote. Um, and so, and you see there many many collaborators, but across as well across quite a large variety of uh, domains. Some uh, scholarly domains. Some are more, uh, you know, uh, similar. Some are quite uh, quite dissimilar. So I'm I'm wondering as you as you think at, at your career so far at least how uh, how did you go about uh, you know not finding collaborators because probably they found you, but uh, deciding on which uh, subject you would collaborate uh, with uh, whom you would collaborate yeah thank you for the question Rasman so um, you know so I guess the the I mean the person the personality of the co-author it's kind of important because you know like I want them you know like if I say oh you know today I have a, a kid sick at home I don't I want them to understand that you know like that I won't be working and I don't want to feel guilty or, you know, and Jiao is one of the best co-authors, by the way. <laughs> Jiao and I did a, uh, yeah, she's one of the best. Um, and so, you know, a personality, somebody who is like completely reliable. And so this is, I mean, I guess a lot of things is, I mean, how I chose, you know, some of the co-authors, you know, some of the early co-authors were my students. And then people that were as hungry as me to publish, you know, like, so, you know, these, you know, these friends from the garden club, which they didn't, you know, like they didn't have tenure, it's like, okay, it's like, we're gonna hang out. Then people from my reading club, even today I have a reading club. And, you know, we work, we work. Um, so I guess, you know, anything that has to do with something that I know, and then I just wanna learn from other people. So sometimes it seems like it might be a little bit off, but I'm just kind of learning from them as well. But also everything kind of has corporate governance and CSR and some kind of international. And that's how, you know, that's kind of, you know, sometimes my students brought me to another area and then, you know, I have to tell them, you are the expert. Like, you know, like with Junko, we're working on something very, something that I don't know because Hussein Levlevichi was there and he was the discourses expert. And now he's not there, but we're continuing the project. So like I have to completely rely on him and he is very, very good. So I can trust him, but you know, this would be one of the projects that I have to rely more on him. But usually is, I know enough and I mean, I haven't been very, I mean, I, have, I haven't been, I guess, very good at just being, I have overcommitted, completely overcommitted, <laughs> completely overcommitted, I, you know, um, yeah, I, I enjoy, you know, like lately, you know, at some point, I also enjoy doing these reviews because I could just go blah, 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 you know, like, so I had a few of the annals, a few of the JOM, you know, and then I enjoy some teams. So I have the QCA team, you know, like, so with Pair Fees and Vilmos and jo Joanna and, and Santi Fornari. So, you know, those are my QCA people. Um, yeah, so I have the corporate governance people. I, ha I guess I haven't been very strategic, you know, I haven't been very, I, I think, you know, when I was at Illinois, they, they told me like that I was too dispersed because I was publishing, you know, ethics journals, law, law reviews, and 
but that's what I enjoyed. I enjoyed like having different audiences. It's like I would read the love reviews. It's like, wow, these people don't even know about these. Let's tell them, you know. And it, it seems so natural, like, oh, you know, like they don't know the the law scholars don't know about this. Let's tell them, you know, or yeah. So that's kind of it hasn't been very strategic. It has been more like kind of following my passion and working with people that I thought they were really fun. Yeah. That's yeah, wonderful. So that's, Thank that's you so how, much. Yeah, it's not very Thank deliberate. You. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. A great answer. Um, let's go to um, let's go to Richard. Uh, Richard, you had an interesting question about you know being a good colleague. Uh, would you like to elaborate on that one? Sure. Uh, hi, Ruth. Uh, my question is, in in your view, in your experience, what does it mean to be a good colleague, and who have you observed being an especially good colleague, and what made them so good? Okay. So um, I guess, you know, like it depends on the each period. I guess it depends on each period of your career. You know, you have to take different roles, I would say, right? So, you know, for, um, so when you're, you know, when you're a doctoral student, I think you need to focus on your dissertation. You need to tool up, you know, learn as much methods, learn as much theory, um, you know, try to connect with as many professors as possible, uh, you know, focus, but try to, so, I mean, I guess in that, you know, but also like at that point you can be a good colleague with your colleagues, you know, like, so I guess, you know, when I started my PhD, my English was not very good. And Theodore Scotchburg had a huge problem with my accent because I didn't pronounce tomato properly because I did not sound American. So, so. You know, I kind of speak in a different way, like sounding very American because I, I had to train myself. Um, but so my colleagues, my PhD colleagues would, would teach me how to pronounce properly, which, you know, I mean, I, I never like, I don't feel authentic if I talk like that. But so, you know, you could be a good colleague for your, co for your PhD friends. Then when you are like, with your, when you are an assistant professor, I think you can also be a good colleague by supporting your cohort, right? Supporting your cohort, doing what you need to do, and I guess like the biggest kind of elephant in the room is the politics, you know, because the politics can be a rabbit hole, okay? Like, and you know, also in academia, they can be, there can be people in every department, they can be people who are, you know, maybe more, you know, and I, I hope it's not me, but they can be more egomaniac, who need some babysitting or who need more, you know, as, you know, he need more, I mean, I guess the, the shortcut is, you know, us kissing or more. So, you know, try, you know, so I would say like for junior people, try not to get into that game. Try not to get into that game at all. And, you know, and I, I think this is something that I learned, you know, early on at Illinois, that, you know, Illinois had very, very little politics actually. Um, but also like I just decided I was just gonna do my work. And I would not get into politics. That was like for people who had more time, because some, you know, the resources were limited, and they had to decide: okay, are we going to hire somebody who does A or B? You know. So I just decided that at that point I would just, you know, and this is like the advice that you know I gave maybe Zhao or other people, you know, like just focus on your work, enjoy your work, and engage even in your networking. I mean, I think this is super important about being a good colleague. And this is something that, you know, with the PhD students at Illinois, I did. Like, if you're gonna do networking, don't do the networking of going, and this is not gin tonic, going to the party, you know, like a candy party, like, haha, you know, 
I think that's terrible networking. You know, do networking through content. You know, do networking through organizing a panel at academy. Do networking, you know, that's how you have, and that's how it's being a good citizen because you, you know, you help your university by being out there and you help yourself and you network through content, not through, I mean, I don't know, because I think many young assistant professors might think that networking is like, oh, I know this, I know that, but if you don't know the people through their work, uh, I think that's not being a good citizen. Like, how are you a good citizen, right? You're asking me that. So, you know, I, I think when I was at Illinois, I tried to, you know, do my work. I tried to, you know, be a good citizen and doing my share of service. Um, but I, I tried to stay away from politics, like, you know, then when you are more senior, then you have to be more involved, you know, like you have to be more involved in different capacities. And, you know, there, you know, I guess at, at the end when I was at Illinois, I was definitely like an institutional builder because it was my role, like to do more institutional builder, like for cyber, for, you know, the doctoral students. And then when I moved to North, Northeastern, I mean, I asked the Dean, what do you want my role to be? How can I contribute? You know, and I'm, con you know, how, you know, I don't want to be here somebody just publishing. I mean, I, I would feel like that I'm taking advantage of the system. I get paid to do more than publishing. So, you know, my dean and I, and now with the new dean, you know, we have con conversation about how do you want me to contribute? You know, what should I do? And, you know, and I, you know, I have a very clear role of what I should be doing. And, you know, what are my skills that maybe other people don't have, I, how I can contribute? So I think that's a good, um, you know, that's like, that's been like a good citizen. And, you know, the citizen can be, you know, a citizen beyond like your school, like if you get involved, you know, like if you get involved in SMS or all of you who are really highly involved in STR, you know, that's being a citizen. That's been an incredible citizen, you know, like committing and making, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a that's, wonderful. I yeah. hope you're, yeah, it's a wonderful answer, uh, Ruth. I'll raise a quick question on behalf of myself that um, Asim echoed as well. And it's a question um, that I think might be of particular interest to, to junior scholars and, and, and PhDs. Uh, relating to what you mentioned earlier about schools used to be uh, wanting to hire purists. And I think, you know, the question would be to what extent do you see this trend um, evolving and what advice would you have for especially junior colleagues want to do more interdisciplinary type of work. Yeah, I think, I think now, you know, I think now I would, I would advise, and you know, I try to do it myself. I, I would advise anybody to read outside, to read, I mean, stay focused, but read outside your field, you know, like be, like when you go into a topic, like really emerge yourself into that topic, like, what the economists have said, what the sociologists, what the political scientists, the law people, like, you know, just, I mean, I, you know, I get all this, I mean, this is the advantage of now, you know, we get all these indexes of all these journals, like I get the sociology ones, the political science, and I will not read all of them, but I'll set up, you know, like some of them, I'll have an abstract, I'll read, you know, so read, and I'm reading more and more books lately, you know, because I think, you know, books, I mean, when I, when I used to teach PhD, we would also read books. Um, so I would, so I would encourage people to do, basically to be interdisciplinary and to try to bring things from other disciplines, to read outside your discipline. I think that's very, very important. And this will come across when you write, when you talk to people, uh, I think it will be, it will pay off.
and it will really open your mind and you'll know that you know nothing. <laughs> you know, like the more you read, it's like, oh my God, like this is a huge field. Like, like how am I gonna get there? But also talk to people, you know, talk to, to other people. Um, this is why I have, you know, I have published with, you know, corporate people, I still continue to publish with corporate lawyers and with people who are, you know, hardcore strategy and people who are moral B. Yeah. Oh, perfect. And no, thanks for that. And in terms of positioning, um, you know, a junior scholar or PhD student positioning themselves in the market, how do you think they can do that with interdisciplinary type work versus the traditional, more boxed in approach of uh, a disciplinary based, uh, you know, purist? Yeah, maybe, you know, I think maybe now, like if you, I think if you could position it in terms of the phenomena now that you're studying, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking aloud, but you know, if you could position in terms of the phenomena and you know, and argue and you know, and 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 have good arguments of why the phenomena is important and why the phenomena, you know, like you know, why the phenomena needs to be studied from like let's say artificial intelligence or climate change or innovation, you know, that we have at Northeastern a very strong group, you know, how it has to be studied from different points of view, OT strategy, uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, family business, governance, you know, I think like if you can focus more on the phenomena and then how different theories can help um, unpack some of the, you know, some of the puzzles within that phenomena, uh, you know, as a way to advance, to advance, to advance the needle, to move the needle. I think that's, I mean, I'm just thinking for scholars, like, so basically like try to really kind of educate your audience. Why are you studying it and why is it important? And then always, always relate it to others. You know, other people have to care. So related to, okay, Pitoche is, you know, like you have done this. So, you know, this is relates in this way, it relates to you. In this way, it relates to you. In this way, it relates to you. So you and I can talk, you know, like, yeah. So that's kind of like how, because people don't like to listen to you. Like, I'm sorry that you have to listen to me today. But people like, you know, like I'm very, I, I'm very tempted to ask you. So, you know, people, you know, but want to, you know, you want to have a conversation, right? Like that's what uh, Min Jin was doing, right? Like you want to have a conversation, Min Jer, sorry. You know, you want to have a conversation. like, what do you think? I'm really curious. Tomorrow I'll definitely log in. Like, you know, what do you think about the tension between US and China? So if you as a doctoral student can say, you know, I study this, but this is important to you too. You who study non-market, this is important to you, you know. So I think that connection, because people want to be connected, you know. Yeah, oh, that, yeah that's perfect. Thanks so much. That's very, very good advice. Um, mindful of the time, you know, I'll, I'll pass the word to, to Samina, who I think has some uh, fun questions uh, on deck, please. Thanks, Garut. Okay. I, I love to ask some random fun questions to all of our scholars. So this is kind of rapid fire, okay? So, okay. what's your favorite dessert? Okay, so, so I guess my favorite dessert is, uh, well, I guess uh, pavlova, which I tried for the first time in Australia in the Qantas Lounge, pavlova, which is a merengue, and then on top of it, it has like uh, berries and kiwi and mango, but if we don't, so my, my children make pavlova, and I torture them to make pavlova for my birthday, but uh, if you cannot have pavlova, which is, you know, merengue, you can look it up, it's not that hard. Then I would say like, you know, wild strawberries, like little strawberries with, you know, whipped cream or, you know, or macadamia ice cream. I would say that that's my, 
Yum. Oh, yeah, these are. I've, I've actually never had pavlova, so I'm going to have to oh, try. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've traveled the world. What is one of your favorite cities or the favorite city? Okay, so I have to, you know, I have to say Barcelona, but I have, you know, I really like the chaotic cities. So, you know, I like Copenhagen because it's very organized in winter. It has all the lights, but I like very busy cities like Seoul. I like, you know, I like Seoul because it has a history of the Americans being there, of the, you know, like, I like Mexico City because it has like all this history of the Aztecs and all this, the Spanish. The, I like Jakarta. I like this, you know, I like this, you know, I like London because it's such a melting pot. I like this, you know, like, but I like this, you know, lately, you know, all the cities that in, in, in Asia, in Southeast Asia, I love the city, but I also love Mexico City. But, you know, Seoul, I particularly like it because it's so cutting edge, so vibrant. You know, Tokyo is also interesting, but I would say Seoul is, you know, and I haven't been to Taiwan. It's in my list. All right. So if, um, if you could go on sabbatical anywhere right now, where would you go? So I am thinking uh, New Zealand or, or Melbourne. <laughs> I'll go with you to New Zealand. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I'm thinking New Zealand. It might happen. Do you prefer mountains or ocean? I think I prefer mountains with lakes. Oh, even though Barcelona is by the ocean, I'm interested. Yeah, but you know, we have in the north, we have the Costa Brava, so it has like the mountains and the sea. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you had a choice and someone said to give you a free Ferrari or a pickup truck, which one would you take and why? Uh, I would pick up a pickup truck for sure. I uh, I once bought a pickup truck for one euro, uh, for one dollar, and I drove from Oklahoma to uh, Champion Urbana, and it's a lot more useful. I can put my trash, my Christmas tree. <laughs> I have I have a pickup a truck still at Urbana because I left it there in the in, in the Vermont Avenue, so uh, I couldn't take it. It was too old. But I have I have a pickup uh, Ford Ranger 1992, which is a community truck. I donated it. So the only thing is like, if you use it, either a bottle of wine in the car, empty, uh, full and, and open, or a full tank. So everybody would use it. So yeah, I have a, a four Ranger pickup truck, red. What, what would your husband say is your worst and best quality? Wow. <laughs> Um, and you maybe, know, I can check with John later to see yeah, if this matches yeah. up. I, I, I honestly don't think, I don't know what the best would be, honestly. <laughs> maybe I'm a good cook, you know, so I would say, yeah, so maybe like I'm, I love cooking. Uh, and I guess, so that's the best thing. The worst thing is that I grew up with a lot of people around me, a lot of people. So my worst quality is that I always have a lot of people in my house. Because my fridge is always full with cool things that I cook, flan and things. So I always have a lot of people and he's like, who is coming? So he is, you know, he wants warning and he's like, I'm not going to ask him because, you know, I, he will say, oh, another day, you know, because he grew up in Oklahoma in the middle of nowhere without any neighbors. So I grew up with a lot of people, a big, big fam Spanish family. So I guess, you know, he... That, yeah, so I guess th that's probably my worst quality. I don't check with him. I just kind of announce. 
but he also enjoys, I think he enjoys. So do you have any gardening skills? Did you pick up from the folks at Illinois in the gardening club? Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually very active in Isti Farm. You can look it up. It's, uh, it's Boston. It's a non-for-profit organization in East Boston for Hispanics. And these are people who speak no English. So we go uh, in this, it's a non-for-profit organization. We go in these empty lots, which actually are full of nasty stuff, you know, like, you know, because drug addicts go there and, and we turn them into beautiful vegetable gardens with flowers. And, you know, basically Hispanic people, mostly Central Americans, they grew, they, they, they own. So these are lots given by people. And so we use our Spanish to help them raise the vegetables. They, they get the vegetables and then the, the leftovers, they go to the food bank. So yeah, I, you know, I think they were very impressed where they, when they contacted me for my Spanish and then they realized that um, actually when I grew up, because I kind of grew up in a, you know, like in a very hippie place, uh, I did a lot of real, real gardening, you know, things that we would eat. So yeah, I am an expert in compost if any of you ever needs. I need your help, okay. Um, <laughs> if so yeah, like I, I do that in Boston. I, we are in this, involved with this, it's their urban farms basically for, you know. People. So yeah. other than the gardening, you're so busy, you do so much. What do you do to unwind and relax? So, you know, like I cook, I cook a lot. I have people over. Um, I like to do social things because, you know, I feel like our work, so I don't go a lot to the movies. I do a little bit of reading, but, you know, I mostly, you know, I love the mountains, so I go a lot on hikes. I love outdoor sports. I love the cold, the heat. I love extreme things. So, so you know, but long bike rides, uh, skiing, uh, you know, sailing here in Barcelona, uh, tennis, but you know, hikes, you know, like just being out. Like I love outdoors and with with people, you know, not not alone with people. So yeah, so like you know, we did the Camino de Santiago, and we did the you know, we did big, many many days hikes, you know, like in the Machu Picchu and these kind of things. So that's what I like to do. I, I can give, I'm sure John would say many amazing best qualities about you, Ruth. So I'm gonna throw one out as a colleague, which is you are giving of your time as is indicative of this session and always kind of positive. I always, you radiate positivity, which I think we all appreciate as colleagues and people who you mentor and who we look up to you. So thank, thank you. you for making the time to do this. And I'm gonna turn it over to Pito Shintel for final words. Right, and oh, I just- Pass on to Gia. Yeah, I just wanted to echo Samina. I, I think really, thank you so much. Our heartfelt thanks to uh, you, Ruth, uh, to sharing the wisdom. And more importantly, I think your warmth and sincerity just transpires even if we're in this virtual environment. So thank you. And thank you everyone for coming. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye, everyone. Have a great time. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye, Young. Bye, Ruth.
Hope to see you sometime, Tash. Yes, young, like you know, <laughs> as soon as we can travel it's again. It's small world, right? <laughs> it is so small, and it, it's crazy. Like you know, so please, as soon as as soon as you can, you know, come over to Melbourne, you know, and sure. and sure. catch yes. up properly. <laughs> I still have, so. uh, I still have been in contact with um, uh, Peter Lish. Yeah, think so. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, correct. Uh, Eliz Elizabeth and, um, and, um, uh, and her husband, they are in uh, New Zealand right now. Yeah. Correct, correct. Uh -huh. now, this, uh, we have a one, it's Australia is funny like that. We have all these, you know, random, amazing scholars. You know, <laughs> all over the place. So the, the lifestyle is amazing. about the uh, connections down under. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so I talked to you, Minje, another time. Oh, good. Um, no, maybe we can spend a few minutes. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> thank you so much, you know, for, for your insight. And, uh, you know, what, actually one of my, my boys uh, know the, the Spanish history language uh, better than Chinese. <laughs> and the Chinese. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So he is very much into the the whole, you know, so the, the, the people like Elizabeth, you know, is very much part of the dinner conversation, the Queen Oh, yeah. well, the culture, yeah. <laughs> the but culture Chinese way. are the same. Chinese are the same. They're so similar. Oh, yes. You right. know, my, yeah. my kids have done seven years of Chinese. So, oh, exactly. you know, because we live in Singapore. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm reading yeah. a lot of Chinese literature. <laughs> yes, right. And, yeah. I, yes. I, <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe Yong. I'll think see you we tomorrow. Can, uh, yeah, see you thank tomorrow. you so much. Bye, Yong Li. Bye, yeah, bye. I don't think we ever met. Maybe yes. that's some time, right? No. So you're in Bel yeah. Melbourne, right? Yeah, I don't think we ever met. Oh, uh, Pitash. Oh, sorry, sorry. Manesh, right? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I I'm at Monash. You know, Minjer yeah. Chan. Bye, yeah. Ruth. Yeah, nice to meet you, Minjer. Like, you know, right. um, likewise, yeah. It's, uh, 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 I'll probably yeah, miss your maybe, session because sorry? yeah, they have to they have to uh, close this. Oh, actually, uh, given you are going to miss the session, uh, I think the question you posed to Ruth, um, and I want to share with you, um, I, I have a paper published in 2009 or 2010, which I very much used the two by two matrix uh -huh. to explain the, the positioning. Uh -huh. So the one one dimension is um, is a topic, and uh, it's a research topic. So, so we can have a choice between focus and diverse. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, another dimension is theory slash methodology. Mm -hmm. And and also you can you know one can have a focus and diverse. Mm -hmm. So so I think that the idea I think Ruth's trying to 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 say is that you can fix your topic. And I, I, I won't use a phenomenon, I will use topic. So, um, which is, is more abstract than the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. and, and so you can choose the focus topic, but can, can use multiple methods and, and, and using multiple theories to study the same topic. Or you can apply the one theory or one method that you know so well to study many topics. Uh -huh. So I think that very much kind of, you know, quote, the strategic choice uh, perspective. Uh -huh. and, and, the pe and the people like Gautam Ahuja, 
and thought that that was the best framework he, he learned in the doctor program. <laughs> okay, that's great to know. I think it was yeah. published in Asian Pacific Journal of Management, something like that. And okay. I used that simple framework to, to, to help and to give, and literally you can, you can plot yourself where you are. And as a strategy person, I, I will avoid the focus topic and the focus, focus method slash theory, or diverse topics, diverse theory, theories, and, and diverse methods. Those, those two are, are not a good um, kind of you know, advice for, for junior people. Uh -huh. I see. So that's, that's my excellent. two cents. Okay. Oh, yeah. Thanks excellent. for your patience, Pitash. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, 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 please get back to me. Yes. Okay. Um, Thank you so much, Sergeant. Okay. Yeah. They have to. They have to close it. Otherwise, they have to wait <laughs> for us, Minjie. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Yong. Know, I think maybe I send you a reply for your the question you raised. Okay. Uh, sure. I'm completely open, but I I think perhaps it would be good that you and Jane. Lead you know, this discussion, control. and then I can uh, work with you, help on the side, okay. and then I can do the 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 wrap up. You know. Okay. The, Sounds good. Sounds okay. good. Good. You. So whatever yeah. you want me to do would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are talking about another thing, Pitash. Okay. Thank I, you. I, okay. It's yes, all good. Yeah. That, it's okay. part of the community. It's all good. And I look forward to to seeing you sometime down under. We'll catch up. <laughs> we'll do that in Melbourne for okay, sure. Okay. Bye bye. Okay.